This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hello and welcome to our next BT Techno podcast designed to keep financial advisors up to date on the latest technical, legislative and regulatory matters that impact financial advice. I'm Brian Ashenden and I have the pleasure of leading the BT Technical Services team a team of subject matter experts available to assist you in answering technical and regulatory queries that may impact your clients. Now, dealing to the new annual consent requirements for clients in ongoing fee arrangements continues to create some elements of uncertainty across the financial advice industry. There are now less than two weeks to the formal commencement of these measures, albeit it is important to remember that there may still be some time before they actually apply to your clients, as it depends on the anniversary date of an ongoing fee arrangement for each particular client. Now, over the course of the last week, we've seen the government announce that they intend to make a regulation to help address unintended timing anomalies that arise during the first 12 months for existing clients. And ASIC have also released guidance on the operation of these measures. Now, to dive into these in more detail and help provide you with further clarity, this week we bring you a conversation between three of our resident experts in this area. Sarah Conti, our Senior Manager of Technical and Regulatory, Brian Pollock, the National Manager of Corporate Governance in the BT Services Business, and Nathan Parker, a Corporate Governance Manager also from the BT Services Business. To get the conversation started, Sarah, I'll now hand it over to you. Thanks, Brian, and welcome, Nathan and Brian. Gents, in the past few weeks, we've seen a number of missing details regarding the upcoming ongoing sea legislation changes clarified through the release of regulatory guidance. In mid-May, the government released the regulations that specify exactly what records financial advisors need to retain to meet their obligations. Last week, Minister Hume announced relief for financial advisors to meet their ongoing fee disclosure obligations with the announcement that the government intends to make a regulation to allow financial advisors to report an estimate of fees for the 60 days prior to the fee disclosure statement being issued. And just this week, ASICS released information sheets 256, which answers frequently asked questions about the obligations that apply to fee recipients who provide personal advice to retail clients under an ongoing fee arrangement. Let's start with ASIC's FAQs. The information sheet 256 outlines a number of questions and answers across ongoing fee arrangements, fee disclosure statements, and ongoing fee consent. We have seen considerable debate and commentary across the industry about back-to-back fixed-term contracts. The ongoing fee arrangement section talks specifically to fixed term arrangements. Brian, can you share your views on what guidance is provided on these arrangements? Sure. Uh, Let's start by confirming what is an ongoing fee arrangement. As most would be aware, where a fee recipient provides personal advice to a retail client and enter into an arrangement where a fee is to be paid for longer than 12 months, then an ongoing fee arrangement exists. From the 1st of July 2021, under the ongoing fee arrangement requirements, the fee recipient must seek to renew the arrangement annually and give the clients an FDS. This includes the prescribed renewal statements that the client must agree to and obtain the client's written consent before they can deduct or arrange to deduct the ongoing fees from the client's account. To your question on back-to-back fixed-term arrangements, there's always been quite a bit of commentary in the market about fixed-term arrangements with industry seeking from ASIC clarity as to how they view back-to-back fixed-term contracts, i.e. do they agree or otherwise with this approach. In the FAQs, uh, question number two 
ASIC do note that they recognise that licensees do enter into fixed term arrangements for charging clients fees for periods of 12 months or less. There is no statement as to whether they agree or disagree with them. However, ASIC do go on to say that they will consider a range of factors in determining if an arrangement is in fact an ongoing fee arrangement or not. ASIC provides three example factors, but importantly, these factors are not exhaustive and ASIC may consider other factors. The three factors are, the agreement is limited to a fixed period of 12 months or less. Fees are stopped at the end of the fixed term agreement and do not exceed 12 months, such as the advisor and licensee having systems in place to ensure this. There is understanding between the advisor or the licensee and their client that the client will be charged fees for a period of 12 months or less. And this can be demonstrated by information given to the client, such as free brochures, marketing materials, or the advisor's file notes. They would logically also capture other documents, like a financial services guide, and advice documents. Brian, many industry participants have already moved to fixed term arrangements and with the announcements made by ASIC, what advice would you give here? I think the last of the three examples is exceptionally important regarding the understanding between the advisor, licensee and the client. The client will be charged for a period of 12 months or less, meaning that the advice process within the, the licensee needs to ensure that the reference to ongoing services that are intended to go beyond 12 months are reviewed. This would include text within advice documents, file notes, and the systems that support the advice process. In addition, when having conversations with the clients, you would need to specifically note that the fixed term agreement being put into place will be reviewed the following year to determine if the client needs any further services, i.e. there is no expectation or intent for it simply to roll over and go beyond 12 months. Therefore, where a firm decides to move towards or continue with fixed term arrangements, and they should have a review of their end-to-end -end advice processes by their relevant compliance and or legal advisors to ensure it all complies. Given the guidance is still unclear, clearly a risk management call. So with this in mind, Brian, what happens if that ongoing fee arrangement doesn't go longer than 12 months? Good question. We're getting questions on this already. As an example, to help context this, uh, would be if, if an ongoing fee arrangement is cancelled within 12 months and a new one is established, say, to change the fees paid. Based on the guidance, if the arrangement does not go longer than 12 months, then technically an FDS is not due. Now, a word of caution around this is that if this occurred across multiple years, it could well be viewed as anti-avoidance and certainly testing standard one of the FCA Code of Ethics. The issue of insurance premiums and whether these are considered ongoing fee arrangements often comes up and the asset guidance states under question two that an arrangement under which the only fee payable is an insurance premium is an example that is not considered an ongoing fee arrangement. Uh, Nathan, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, thanks Sarah. ASIC have always been quite clear within their guidance such as the now withdrawn 245 or RG245 that a payment received from a third party to an AFS licensee or representative will generally not constitute an ongoing fee. However, if there's clear consent from the client that the commission being received is to pay for an ongoing arrangement, then it'll be caught under the however described or structured provision within 962A. As example, if you are charging the client a $5,000 ongoing fee and it is agreed in the OFA that the $1,000 worth of insurance commissions being received is to help fund the arrangement, then it would need to be disclosed in the FDS. This said, we are aware that industry is seeking further clarity on this point, given ASIC's comments in question three relating to consent. Look, let's talk now about the anniversary date. Nathan, can you outline the requirements for new clients? Yeah, of course. 
Look, in simple terms, it is the date the ongoing fee arrangement was entered into. As described in question seven in the frequently asked questions, ASIC provides that example that if you use the authority proceed to enter into an ongoing fee arrangement, then it's the actual date that the client signs off on that authority proceed. However, most firms these days use a separate document to the SOA where a specific ongoing fee arrangement contract is used. Then it'll be the date that this is signed. As ASIC note in the FAQs, a key point is that if it's signed on the 15th of August, then it's the 15th of August for subsequent years as that anniversary date. So if a fee recipient wants to change the anniversary day for an ongoing fee arrangement, what do they need to do, Nathan? Yeah, good question. Um, so basically, if a fee recipient wants to change that date or the anniversary date for the OFA, the fee recipient must enter into a new arrangement with the client. And this includes, which is important, to also terminate the old OFA and the consents. This example is covered off in question 11. If for existing clients, there are the transitional provisions that cover the anniversary date. How does the asset guidance feel to these? Yeah, okay. So for existing clients who are currently on an OFA, the transition date is the day you actually provide the client with the FDS during the transition year. So that transition year period is between 1 July 2021 and 30 June 2022. So if you provide the client with the FDS on the 1st of September 2021, then that becomes a locked-in anniversary date for future years. And as I covered off in the last question, then if you want to change that date going forward, you must then cancel the existing OFA and then enter into a new one with the client and also a consent. While we've had the legislation for some time now, section 962X, that newly substituted section, talks about advisors' record keeping obligations. We also know records need to be retained for five years and failure to do so may result in up to five years imprisonment. The government released regulations in mid-May that set out the, you know, the records that need to be kept. Brian, can you talk advisors through the requirements of record keeping? Absolutely. Uh, and the new regulations in ASIC question 12 detail what records must be kept. So to start, and, and just a friendly reminder, that records aren't just physical documents, but also data or electronic records, such as dates and delivery methods. The list is quite extensive. Uh, which I will summarise in brief. So let's start with written consent, firstly, where records, as you mentioned before, need to be retained for at least five years. So each written consent given to you by a client includes a date when the client was given. As an example, if the client provides a written consent by signing a box on a web page, and you keep a, a timestamp screenshot of that page, that would be the evidence to that client's written consent and meet that specific record keeping obligation. Each notice to vary or withdraw written consent given to you by a client, including the date you were given the notice and the date you confirmed you had received the notice from the client. Communications from you, such as emails, text messages and letters, about giving the third party account provider, so that's your product manufacturers, a copy of the written consent or a copy of, the, of a notice to withdraw or vary the consent and written notice of when the consent ceases. And then finally, details of any arrangement between you and an account provider. So they're the key record-keeping obligations for written consents. Now, in addition to that, we've got the FDS record-keeping obligations that also need to retain for five years. And the key points there is each FDS that you've given to your clients, including the date when the fee disclosure statement of the FDS was given, and how was it given? Was it sent via email or you know, did you receive a, you know, via text or via electronic communications? Any notification from a client to renew or not renew or terminate an ongoing fee arrangement and the date on which the notification was given. And finally, if an ongoing fee arrangement has been terminated, the date on which it was terminated and the basis on which it was terminated. As you can see, there's a lot 
there's a lot of records to retain and therefore having the right systems in place to capture the information is key. Often data and records are held with the advisor or on an advisor's email and not captured within some central licensee CRMs. If they leave the licensee, the records could well be lost. Uh, for me personally, I would not want to be looking at uh, criminal offences and jail time for five years for missing records due to someone else's um, management of their record keeping. I also expect that some ASLs or licensees will retain these records for longer or more aligned with their general record keeping obligations of seven years. Yeah, sure. Look, both the legislation and ASIC's legislative instrument detail what advisors need to cover in the FDS. Nathan, can you talk through these requirements? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, from 1 July, there are now three key parts that need to be included in the FDS. Um, and, and they are, so the first one is the amount of each ongoing fee paid by your client under the arrangement in the previous year, the services they are entitled to receive, and more importantly, or most importantly, is confirmation of those services they did receive. Secondly, the amount of each ongoing fee your client will be required to pay under the arrangement during the upcoming year, and also the services that they'll be entitled to. And then um, the third piece is really how to renew that arrangement. Look, if you haven't done, by, done so by now, make sure you have a conversation with your technology provider to obtain the relevant templates to help you meet those requirements. The obligation to report fees up to the day before the FDS is issued has created some angst within the industry. Uh, last week, Minister Hume announced that the government intends to make a regulation to allow financial advisors to report an estimate of fees for the 60 days prior to the fee disclosure statement being issued. Nathan, can you shed some light on how this may work? Yeah, of course. Um, look, this is unexpected, but a good announcement. And although at this stage it has been proposed, we still need to see the regulations released prior to getting too excited. Um, but it is quite positive. Look, the benefits of this approach is it will give licensees and advisors more time to draft the FDS to issue to clients. Prior to the announcement, the FDS had to be current up until the day prior to issuing the document. This particularly made the bulk production of FS, sorry, FDSs near impossible. Under the proposals, it will allow you to estimate the fees up to 60 days prior to the production of the FDS, allowing the ability to bulk produce them. It is important that you ins still ensure the accuracy of the data when producing your FDSs. And you'll need to be clear that the 60 days, so let's call it two months, is a forecast and it'll be logical to add a note in the FDS regarding this. If you do bulk produce FDSs, you'll also still need to manage the issue and collection of the consent forms. I know a lot of firms are moving back to face-to-face -face meetings to ensure either document management, including record keeping, and assist with the, client the overall client experience. Look, on the last point on this, remember FDS content and the date still needs to be provided and be consistent with the information immediately before the day. So if you produce an FDS on 1 September with the real data up to the start of July, and then the 60 days of forecast data has to be the 31st of August, the FDS must be provided on the 1st of September. As I said at the start of this question, we still need to see the regulations as the devil could really be in the detail on this one. Yeah, it always seems to be the case, the devil is in the detail. But Brian, with all of this in mind, are there any hot spots you'd like to call out that advisors need to be aware of? Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, there's probably three key call outs. The first one is reviewing your process to ensure you can support the new requirements and also ensure your staff are trained appropriately. Process breakdown can often be a key contributor to large scale errors, so just spend time to get it right. Secondly, Engaging your technology provider by now, um, that should be really well progressed. Ensure you understand how the systems you use will operate together 
with the overall client experience, you know, how's the client going to interact? Will your operational processes work effectively with those technology providers? And then thirdly, record keeping in particular, if you run a big business, having confidence in your records management, you really don't want to find out in three years that records are missing, particularly if the advisors left your business. Yeah, great tips there, Brian. Um, Brian Nathan, with ongoing fee arrangement changes due to tech effect on 1 July, getting a better understanding of the finer details is so important for advisors. So we thank you for your time and your knowledge on this important topic. Brian, back to you. Thanks, Sarah, and thanks also to you, Brian, and to you, Nathan. A great discussion that really highlighted a number of important issues for our listeners to consider in the lead-up to 30 June. Add to that the long-awaited passage this week of bills through both Houses of Parliament for changing the bring-forward qualifying age for non-concessional contributions from 65 to 67, the expansion of self-managed super fund membership from four to six members from the 1st of July, and the Your Future, Your Super measures. The end of this financial year certainly is going to be busy. Now, speaking of 30 June, please join me on Wednesday the 30th of June for our next BT Academy technical webinar where, to quote Bon Jovi, I'll be presenting on the topic of, whoa, we're halfway there. And whilst not living on a prayer, there certainly has been a lot that has happened in the first six months, and with these recent changes in Parliament, a lot more to come. And in this session, we will look at where things currently stand and what you and your clients need to be ready for over the next six months of 2021. To register, head to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy webinar series. You can also view previous webinars and all sessions qualify for CPD points. And as always, remember, if you have any technical advice strategy questions, you can call our BT Technical Services team on 1800 655 901 or send the team an email at technical at btfinancialgroup.com. Until next time, bye for now. BT Tech knows, and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast is being developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.